In about mid-2020, I think it was June, so it was a bit of a cold morning, uh, I woke up on the edge of my bed and looked outside the window. The, I've got a big um, um, hanging eucalyptus tree, drooping eucalyptus tree in front of my window, and uh, it was a pretty dark kind of day. There was a little bit of cloud, a bit of a blue sky peering through, and uh, I don't know if you've ever woken up like this. You just kind of woke up and you feel a bit depressed, a bit down in the dumps, <laughs> wondering whether you should just go back to sleep because it'd be nice to check out of life for maybe another half an hour or whether you should drag yourself out of bed and try to get through another day. Uh, so it'd been a pretty difficult uh, time over the last four or five years leading up to that. There'd been uh, some issues in our church here and some leadership issues that have been mainly behind the scenes and quite difficult for Zoe and I and our church was at a real crossroads in the middle of 2020, and I'm looking out the window, drag myself out of bed for another day of pastoring, thinking, what's this all about, Lord God? What are we going to do as a church? Everything had come to a bit of a head. Where do we go from here? What is going on? And I clearly heard the voice of the Lord say, who is going to be responsible for the people out there? Looking out my window, I'm thinking, people out there, like out this window? I can't see anyone out this window. But then I felt God say to me, just to be more specific, who is going to be responsible for the people that live in this court of yours? There's about 10 houses in my court, my Otway Rise. Who's going to be responsible for the people that live in Casey, Cranbourne, Frankston, Lang Warren? Who's going to be responsible for them? Who's going to pray for them? Who's going to care about them? Who's going to think about them? Which church is going to put themselves in a position where they could actually help people come to know Jesus Christ? Who is going to think about how the people out there think? Who's going to think about how the people out there feel? Who's going to consider the marginalised, the lost, the poor, the marriage that's falling apart, the person that's going through a tragedy of just a, a lost one, a, a loved one that's just died, that they've just lost. Who's going to think for them, pray for them, possibly be in a position to introduce God to them? That's what God was saying to me in that little sentence of who's going to be responsible for them. You see, our church for a long time had been a great church, but part of our focus of bringing people into the church had more been bringing people from other churches. We're more of a uh, mature draft picked kind of church rather than a go to the under 18 draft and bring through the young guys. You see, God has called churches, every church, to fill the seats of their church, not with people from other churches that transfer in, but ultimately, and this is the tough call on a church, ultimately to fill the seats of a church, to fill the life groups of a church, to fill the family of a church with people who didn't know about Jesus before they came to the church. Any church that you see in the Western world, in Australia, in America that you hear of that's growing is growing through consolidation. And lots of churches grew through COVID because people left their other churches and went to a, a bigger church, a nicer church, a church that has better music and whatever. And, and a lot of churches that are growing, most of them, 99% of them are growing through consolidation because other Christians come to that church. We live in an interesting time in Western culture, in Australia. It's difficult to grow a church with people that weren't a Christian or weren't coming to church or weren't following Jesus that now come to a church and are involved in a church family because they've found Jesus. 
because they've joined the church, because they want to grow, they want to know more about Jesus. So who are these 500,000 people that God mentioned to me? Well, they're the people who live from the Frankston Beach. Does anyone live out that way? Frankston South, Seaford down that way. All the way through to Narriwarren, Clyde. That's kind of Frankston, Casey, down to Pearsdale and kind of up to Narriwarren. In the census we just had, that number's actually gone up to about 550,000. And by 2040, 713,000 people will live in that little neck of the woods. The blue circle there is where we are today, 10 kilometres around it. The red circle is actually a new site that's five kilometres that way, and there's a red circle around it. And you can go back to the last slide. That, that What God is really asking us to do as a church and be responsible for as a church is these half a million people that live within 15 minutes of us, you and me, our houses, our church, our workplaces probably, with the gospel. That's the call on us as a local church. That's the call, as I've been saying for weeks and weeks and weeks now, that's the call on any healthy local church, is to first be responsible for the people that are across the road, and then out of that, in time, responsibility will come for cities, and nations, and other nations, and things like that. So these half a million people that live around here, most of them don't go to church, don't, haven't been in a church, and aren't experienced with the church. So as a Christian, if you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for a while, your world's gonna be pretty Christian, and naturally, like anyone's world, it kinda narrows down to the people that you know, and the things you do, and the places you go. We're very limited, finite human beings. There's only about 4 5% of us in Australia that go to church at least once a month. 95% of average Aussies wouldn't even think twice about getting up on a Sunday morning and walking into a church. You are the minority, the tiny, tiny minority of people who actually believe in God and then believe that part of following Jesus is that you should go to church because that's a place to commune and grow together. This is what the people are, who the people are out there in Frankston, Casey, this area. Uh, about two thirds of them are Casey and about one third is Frankston if you look at the suburbs. So it's a little bit heavier on the Casey side, about 350,000 in Casey. Cranbourne South and Cranbourne East are two of the biggest suburbs that will experience growth in the next 20 years. Both of Cranbourne South and Cranbourne East, you could almost throw a cricket ball from those suburbs to our new site where we're gonna be maybe next year or the year after. They're two of the biggest growth suburbs in Australia. The people who live out there are generally younger. So in the 10 closest suburbs to, to that new site over there, the average age of those suburbs is less than the average age of Victoria. So Cranbourne East average age is only 31 and Clyde is only 30. More People are mostly married with kids. So in Botanic Ridge where I live, 59% of people and in Clyde 65% of people are married with kids compared to 45% in Victoria. The cultural diversity, well around the new site where we're going to be uh, as a church is very white actually. It's, Botanic Ridge is actually 82% Aussie or British. Can you believe that? I didn't realise how white it was in my suburb. But then as you kind of span out a little bit, a few kilometres, it gets a lot more of a Aussie, Indian, Punjabi uh, migrants. In Clyde, you've got 20% Indian, you've got Cranbourne West, you've got 17%. So you kind of have this inner hub right around the new land site there that's pretty white, Aussie, young, family, tradie dudes. And then you go out a few kilometres and you start to get a lot more 
new Aussies, migrants, and heavy, a bit more heavy on the Indian uh, migrants. And then as you go a little bit further, like into Clyde, you start to get a lot more of the Eastern religions come in. So Islam, um, Sikhism, uh, Hinduism starts to get a bit higher. In, in Clyde and Clyde North, it's actually 30% a Hindu, Sikh, uh, or Islam. But the interesting thing, as we've spoken about before at church, is that the no-religion people or the nuns is higher than we've ever seen before in a census. So a census in 2021, that's the top, top, top point there, had the highest no religion that we've ever seen. And Botanic Ridge, where I live, and Langwarren are the two most non-Christian, non-religious suburbs in Australia. So the average for Victoria is 39% said no religion. I don't follow any God. I'm totally a secular human being. 39% said that in Victoria. In Botanic Ridge and Langwarren, 54% said that. The question for us as a church is how do you present the gospel to people that aren't interested in religion? That's the key question. The question isn't, is the gospel right? The question isn't, is God powerful enough? The question isn't, is the Bible true? Those things we all believe in. The question is, how do you present this to a young, white, Aussie tradie who's concerned with his tattoos, concerned with going to the gym, concerned with buying a boat, concerned with his high income. How do you present the gospel to someone like that? How do you present the gospel to a migrant who's just landed here that's gone through who knows what to get to this country and now has one opportunity to set their kids up and get them an education and to work three jobs in order to pay for their house to finally have some freedom in this new country? How do you bring that person and go, hey, Jesus, can answer the deepest needs of your heart? That is the great question. This is called reaching or evangelism. And this is what Jesus spoke about. At the end of Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel, there's these bunch of verses where Jesus talks about the church or people that believe in him needing to go out and reach. So reaching, or what we traditionally call evangelism, is the art of living and sharing the gospel in a compelling way. The gospel, as we spoke about earlier in this series, is the good news about Jesus Christ, right? You might remember I shared with you when we spoke about being gospel-centered that Mark, in his gospel, in verse one, chapter one, verse one, says, this is the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he goes on and the gospel of Mark is him explaining this gospel or this good news about Jesus. At the end of Mark's gospel in chapter 16, I'll read it out for you, right at the end, so we've got bookends here, Jesus says, or Mark quotes Jesus as saying in verse 15, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. So Mark starts his gospel with this is the good news about Jesus, Chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, right up to chapter 16. And then he says, now the last thing Jesus told us to do is to take this great news, the greatest news the world has ever seen. That you don't have to save yourself, you don't have to heal yourself, you don't have to deal with all the horrible things and motives and challenges in your heart and your life. Jesus came, he died on a cross and he took the pain, he took the challenge, he paid the price. This is the good news. Now go and tell everybody that. And do it in two ways, live and share. 
So for the Christian to be effective, for me, who lives, can you believe it? I didn't know these statistics, but ironically, your pastor lives in Botanic Ridge, one of the most heathen, pagan places in all of Australia. And ironically, Langwarren, uh, I've been highly involved in Langwarren Soccer Club for 20 years. I'll be the all-time under six coach next year at Langwarren Soccer Club, taking a bunch of five-year-old boys to the championship, hopefully. Uh, we'll see how we go. Maybe a couple of girls in there as well. But ironically, God's put us in a place where we need to actually think about as we go into the world and preach the gospel, the gospel's unchanging, there's only one gospel, but how do we present the gospel? That's the big question. Because people will hear you if you share the gospel in a way that they understand. People will not hear you if you share it in a way that they don't understand. Go into all the world and preach the good news to anyone. Verse 16, anyone who believes and is baptised will be saved, but anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. And these miraculous signs will accompany those who believe. They'll cast out demons in my name, they'll speak in new languages, they'll be able to handle snakes with safety, they will drink anything poisonous, it won't hurt them, they'll be able to place their hands on the sick and they will be healed. Basically, Jesus is saying, as you follow this commandment and go into all the world and share the gospel, it's okay, I'm gonna look after you. I look after your family, I look after your job, I'm gonna look after you if you're bumping into any poisonous snakes in your backyard, which can definitely happen around Botanic Ridge, okay? The brown snakes everywhere around there. So thank God it's in the scriptures here. But basically Jesus is saying, as you focus on what's important, I'm gonna take care of you. Now in first century, these things are great. It's great, I'd love it if I drink poison, I didn't die, okay? It's probably not a huge problem for you in you know, 21st century Australia, unless you get the Drano out of the cupboard and drink it, then you can quote this scripture. But what God is saying is, as you focus on what's important to me, I'm gonna look after you as you go. So the church's approach to culture, therefore, has to be clever. It has to be winsome. It has to be well understood. We live in a rapidly declining Christian country. If we've got the next slide here. This is from the 21st, uh, 2021, last year, the census as well. The blue line there is Christianity since 1971. The orange line there is people saying, I have no religion. So secular people, secular meaning without God, I have no religion. I don't care about religion. I don't do church, Islam, whatever. I don't pray. I don't read sacred texts. I don't do any of that stuff. And those two lines basically met in 2021. For us as Christians, and I know this might bother some of you, but we have to come to the facts, we have to embrace the facts that as Christians that go to church, we're a minority. And most people out there, 95% of Aussies, couldn't care less about your Bible, couldn't care less about your church, couldn't care less about your beliefs. Now, I know that sounds horrible, but we have to accept that that's the position that we're in. Our country used to be a Christian country and has amazing Judeo-Christian roots, but that is not where the conversation is at. If you want to pretend that we still live in the 1950s or the 1850s or whatever, then that's up to you, but you're going to find it very difficult to reach your neighbours or very difficult to share your faith. We shouldn't be getting surprised by cultural flashpoints. I still have lots of Christians say to me, oh, I can't believe the LGBT and you know, the transvestite stuff and whatever. It's like, well, what do you expect? Why do you expect unbelievers to behave like believers? Why do you expect that people that have never read the Bible and couldn't care two hoots about Jesus 
to do something that might look like Jesus or look like the Bible. When you live in a secular culture, things aren't going to look like Sunday morning church people. Things are going to look like the 95% of everyone out there and how they want to live. So yesterday I was chatting to the guy at McDonald's as I picked up McDonald's for my kids. We stopped at Macca's on the way home. It's about a 16-year-old young guy, had nice blonde pigtails out of the side here, quite a deep voice. His voice probably broken in the last 18 months. And he had boobs. He had boobs, somehow. In a couple of years, my kids will be working at McDonald's. Their friends will be gay. They'll have a bunch of friends transitioning one way or the other. Who cares? Am I going to not let them work at McDonald's? Am I going to go in there with my Bible and say, hey, I believe God created male and female. Look, it's here. It's in Genesis chapter 1. Who gives? What do you think the 16-year-old cares what's in Genesis chapter 1 or Genesis chapter? He's got no care whatsoever. Do you think he's ever heard of the Bible? Do you think anyone's read the Bible, Tim? Do you think he's got any Christian friends? Probably not. So we can go into the culture and we can go one of three ways. The first way is we can go into the culture and we can go in with a militant moralism. That's where you show them scripture and verse how they're sinning. It's a very cold way to approach 16-year-old Macca's trans, you know, transitioning kid. Do you think he's going to be like, oh, thank goodness, you quoted Genesis 1 to me. Now I can you know, come to Jesus and wow, thank you. No, he's going to feel judged. He's going to feel like it's only going to affirm Christians are judgmental. Churches are places that I would never go. I would never step in that place. I would never be welcome. I would never talk to those people. That's one way that we can go. We can show them this. We can argue. We can get into the culture wars and we can fight. We can get on social media and type nasty things to people and quote scriptures. And we can get into, we can try and get Christian people into high positions of power so everyone sees that Christians are awesome too. And we can fight, fight, fight. But the problem with this way is it really lacks a lot of grace. And you see, Jesus was full of grace. He didn't care about prostitutes and Roman soldiers and people who weren't following things properly. He just wanted to love and show grace to people. Jesus was actually most concerned about people who were hypocritical that quoted scriptures and then didn't live by them. But the second way we can approach culture is not the way to win either, and that's the progressive embrace. Let's just make all the scriptures fit with all the things that Aussies want to do. Let's just make it so no one feels any need to repent, any need to say sorry to God, any need to deal with it. Let's just throw the holiness of God and the fact that God is a judge, let's just throw that out the window and just love everyone. Jesus is my homeboy kind of attitude. At the end of the day, God won't send anyone to hell because he's kind kind of way. And we just twist things to fit. That's not the way to approach culture either. So neither is the militant, fighting, arguing, winning. That's not God's way. And neither is the openness, do whatever, pull truth down. That's not the way to win either. The way that we need to engage culture is engage in unchurched culture. So people who don't understand church and Bible and whatever through genuine long-term friendships, offering a winsome and relevant gospel presentation. You know, a church, a good, healthy local church is the only organisation in the world that exists for its non-members. 
exists for the people that aren't here. Only us. No other organisation is thinking about the people not in the room except for us. When, the, when this happened in the Bible, Paul was kind of the expert on unchurched or non-Christian people coming in because in first century when the Bible was written, guess what? The Christians were a minority living in a godless pagan culture. The Roman Empire was ruling with violence and brutality. It was a highly, highly sexualized culture. It was just free reign when it came to sexual things. And in the first century, they're writing the Bible about how we share the gospel within this context, maybe not dissimilar to today. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul is talking about to the church in Corinth. So there's a church there and he's written a letter, his first letter to the church in Corinth. There's two in the Bible. And he's explaining to them how to conduct their church meetings. So when you gather together, this is how you should do church. And he says to them, In verse 22, so you see that speaking in tongues is a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for the benefit of believers, not unbelievers. So here Paul's talking to the church and he's talking about two things. He's talking about prophecy. So that's speaking out what God is saying in language that people understand. So for us, that's English. For these guys, it would have been Greek. He's comparing that with speaking in tongues, which is a Pentecostal charismatic phenomenon, a gift of the Holy Spirit, an ability to speak in a language that isn't English. We were doing it in our prayer time here this morning. We use it as a way to stir up our spirits and to connect with God. One in English, prophecy, people can understand what God's saying. Then there's speaking in tongues, which is not in English. It's not for everybody. It's just for you to help you connect with God. And Paul's explaining, so when you meet together as a church, let's just use two examples, prophecy and tongues. There's lots and lots of different things, but let's use prophecy and let's use tongues. And he says in verse 23, if unbelievers or people, or insert there the unchurched who aren't familiar with church stuff, who don't understand these things, come into your church meetings and hear someone speaking in an unknown language, they will think you are, everybody say it together, crazy. Has anyone ever brought someone to church on a Sunday when something crazy happened? And you're like, oh no, it's tough, I know. Has anyone brought someone over to their house and then like they've had a friend there who's done some Christian crazy thing or cornered your best friend who's not a Christian at a party and told them all this stuff about, and you're like, no, I'm trying to build a friendship with this person to show them who Jesus really is and the crazy Christian friend cornered them at the party and told them all this weird stuff. This is in the Bible. You can misrepresent God and you can share the gospel with good heart. I know nobody's trying to do the wrong thing, but with a good heart, you can share the gospel in a way that will inoculate people to the truth of God. Verse 24, Paul flips it and he says, but if you're prophesying and unbelievers or people don't understand these things and they come into your meeting, they will be convicted of sin and, and judged by what you say. Because when we prophesy, So what I'm doing now in a sermon is like prophecy. I'm speaking on God's behalf. I take a very humble position doing this every Sunday because I treat it with great respect because I'm sharing to you what I believe it says in God's word. And the the responsibility for me to do that in a way that's gonna help you find God 
and not stumble over something that Caleb has an opinion on is very, very important. So prophecy, if it's done right and it represents God well, it has power. It has power to convict people in their hearts because it's not some cool, trendy pastor up the front giving some amazing inspirational speech. No, it's God comes through the meeting and if your heart is open, you can be convicted and touched by God. He can transform your life. And as they listen, their secret thoughts will be exposed, says Paul, and they'll fall on their knees and worship God, declaring, God is truly among you. So there's two ways things can go in your life group, in this church, kids' church. You have a party at your house if you ever invite someone who's not a Christian, which I hope you would do all the time. The first way is the unchurched guest comes in and there's a whole bunch of obstacles. Next slide, thanks. There's a whole bunch of obstacles there. The bottom one there. Unchurched guest comes in, there's obstacles. You guys are crazy. The challenge for us is to do it the top way there. An unchurched guest comes in to church, to a life group, to your house, to a party, wherever you're gathering, to kids' church, to youth group on a Friday night, and there's things that enable them, like prophecy, like explaining things properly about God, like not judging and pointing fingers. Who needs a judgy, judgy Christian telling everyone who's wrong? The church already has a horrible PR issue in our culture. Everyone thinks you as Christians are judgy, judgy. And me too, so I'm pointing the finger at myself here. Now I know that you're not and you're lovely and whatever, but they don't because they see what's in the news and they see what's in the movies and whatever. So coming in and pointing a finger of any time, even someone getting a sense of judgment is gonna be an obstacle and they're just gonna go, man, you guys are crazy. But there's other things that you can do that enable people to come to Jesus, like prophecy, like relationships. I can't see in the Bible right now for us as a better way than how Jesus ate and drank with people. But you know what the challenge with eating and drinking is and building friendships is? That's going to require you to put down roots somewhere and spend time and spend money on other people that are not yourself and not your wife and not your best mate, but on someone else who lives in your street or at your footy club or at your dance school and actually create some space to have a friendship possibly over years and years and years with the hope and the outcome being you become great friends, not that you can convert them. That's not the, Jesus, do you see Jesus in the gospels trying to convert everyone? He's not trying to just get people in a door. No, he's trying to relate to them and connect with their heart. He leaves God touching their heart to them. He, but he's trying to facilitate that. This is a great challenge. I, church, I will be honest with you. Zoe and I are deeply, deeply challenged by this. We are not smashing it in this area. I said to Zoe, just this summer, we need to really sort ourselves out and get a couple of neighbours over for some barbecues. We've been stuck indoors for two years. We've been having babies for 10 years. You know, we haven't had a lot of space. But I can't wait to get into the under sixes at the Langwarren Soccer Club next year because that's going to give me a great opportunity just to build friendships. I've already got a lot of friendships. Why? Because I want people to go, hey, Caleb's not a crazy person. Yes, he's a bit weird. He has this faith thing, but like he's normal. He can talk. We can relate. But there's got to be a point of difference still. It's not about going into the world and looking exactly the same with them. There's got to be something different about me. 
Or else I wouldn't be a Christian if I'm just the same. If I'm stressed like they are, then what's the difference? If I'm just trying to buy the next biggest house or the next great car or the next pair of shoes, then well, what's the difference? If I go through a trial or a crisis and I just fall apart and I have no faith and no hope and I become vindictive and bitter and difficult and depressed, then what's the difference? But if I have a prayer life that keeps my heart clean, And if I have a rhythm and a schedule that's like, hey, you don't just chase everything everyone else does. If I talk in a way that actually appears that I have a faith or that there's something bigger that I'm concerned about, then that's a point of difference. That gives people an opportunity to go, wow, you're here with us, you're in the world, you live with your feet on the ground. But I do notice that you conduct yourself in a little bit of a different way. So as we finish today, let's just, I want to look at three different practical things that we can do to help us as a church, help us as people, as families, as Christians, begin to go into the world as Jesus commanded, it's a command of Christ, go into all the world, preach the gospel, but to start to go into the world, I'm going to talk a bit about more about this next week, to start to go into, a, into the world in a way that people can actually understand what you believe and have a chance to hear the gospel. The first one is really obvious. Try to understand, don't judge the unchurched. Does anyone remember this story? Any of you have kids and the Dr. Zeus? No one. My goodness, you're uneducated. You down there. It's nice to have my wife in the second sermon for the year. She's barely been here this year supporting me. She's been watching on live stream. We're raising our babies, I'm sorry. We have incredibly difficult children when it comes to judgy, judge, judge. Sorry, you can all point a finger back at me. I've done a lot of that today. So the story of the snatchers is a classic because you've got the star belly snatchers who look down on the plain belly snatchers. We just read this the other night, Jed and I, that's why it's in the sermon, I'm sorry. And the star belly snatchers had stars upon stars. Do you remember that, Dr. Zeus, rhyming? Stars upon stars. And the plain belly stitches had none upon stars. So, okay, that's how the story goes. The underlying message here for the five-year-old that doesn't really get it is that prejudice is bad. See, the star belly snatchers, they're exactly the same as their plain belly snatched friends, but they look down on them. They have something different. They're judgmental. They act superior. And what begins to happen is there's an insider group and the star belly snatchers are an insider group. And as the story goes on, they have fun, they play, their kids are happy, they get access to all the good things. The plain belly snatchers are exactly the same, created the same, live in the same place, but they're treated as outsiders just because they lack the star. This is the first and most common and most simple problem that we fall into. Rather than going to the world with grace and love and a listening ear and how can I help you and what do you think about things and oh, tell me your opinion of the church. Oh, that's pretty harsh. Okay, I'm a Christian. Tell me what you think about Christians. Oh, that's difficult to hear. Okay, going with grace and love and listening and actually interacting rather than going with a preconceived judgment, looking down going, well, look, I know the Bible and look, I know about God's stuff and look, I understand about things like that. 
This is my big encouragement to you. Not many Christians and not many churches want to do the hard work of actually understanding the people that live in their street. We would love the opportunity for someone to rock up one day and say, oh, I need Jesus, and we can share the gospel with them and bring them to Christ. Of course, that's fantastic. But are you willing to do the hard work of actually knowing the neighbours in your street, the people who work next to you in the cubicles at work, what are their concerns? What are their thoughts? What are their desires? What is success to them? What are they aiming at? What are they going through? What are they anxious about? If you can take away judgment, then you'll begin to understand and God, the Holy Ghost, will begin to work through with you. You see, coming to church is not a common thing to do anymore. When was the last time you were invited to an Islamic mosque or a Hindu temple and you went along? Have you ever been to a mosque? What, 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 what would you wear? How long does the service go for? Would you, would you bend down on your knees and pray with your head to the ground facing towards Mecca? Or would you stand at the back and just say, oh, you guys do your thing, that's cool. I'll just watch along. When does this end? <laughs> Why do you think coming into this building is any different? Why, because you've been here before? Because you've been in the church for 10 years? Because you've been a Christian in other churches? That's exactly what it feels like to your tradie mate, to your soccer mum friend, to, to, to your kids' friends that go to the local school. That's exactly what it feels like when you talk about church, they think Islamic mosque. No idea. I've actually been into a few Islamic mosques, but when people drive past here on a Sunday morning, you know what they see? They see an exclusive country club or an exclusive member-only golf club. And they think, what are, what are those people doing there? Like, that must be expensive. Like, I think you have to give money. You have to like be an insider. You've got to sign up to some kind of special membership. You've got to wear certain kind of clothes to be able to get into that building. That's what people do as they drive down McCormick's Road and Ballada Road. They think, what are they doing in there? That's odd and expensive and weird clothes. And why would anyone play golf for hours and hours and hours and then want to hang around there for hours and hours and hours after. Sorry if that offends you, Mark Oliver and <laughs> Glenn Davy and a few golf fanatics we've got out there. Our hope here is that this church can become a place that the unchurched can love. That this place can become a place that if anyone came in here, whether it's in here, whether it's a youth group, whether it's kids' church, whether it's your home, that it's a place that people who don't know anything about here or anything about God can feel loved and can feel included. The second thing I want to encourage you to do is to, is to consider how you reach the unchurched. And I'm sorry if you're sitting here or you're watching this morning and you're not a Christian because it's a little bit insider this morning and talking to those inside, but I hope that this helps you today. The old gospel grid that you may think people had is gone. Go back 100 years in Australia, everybody respected God. Everybody had an awareness that there was sin, there was selfishness, there's kind of a problem in our hearts. 95% of people, the opposite to today, 95% of people knew that the saviour of our hearts, the person who could deal with our problems was Jesus. We needed something divine, not something 
physical or natural or earthly. And there was a concern, a genuine concern for what would happen when I die, eternal judgment, where do I go? I wanna go to heaven. Those four dot points that most Aussies had 50, 60 years ago are gone. They do not exist anymore. Reaching people today with the gospel is not the art of connecting dots that they already have. It's helping people create dots that do not exist. See, when I grew up, even in the 80s, it was very much people understand those four things, just go out and talk to them in the street, help them remember God, remember they've got sin, remember Jesus can save them, connect the dots, maybe in a bad spot, they'll meet Jesus and come back to church. And most people were coming back to the faith. It's a completely different thing now. You think your children, your Gen Z teenagers are going out there talking to other 14-year-olds and those 14-year-olds are like, yeah, I've been, you know, I've been well brought up to respect God. Yeah, I have an awareness of sin and the fallenness of human nature. Yeah, I understand that salvation comes from above. It doesn't come from sex or money or social media or fame. Uh-uh, that is not what 14-year-olds are thinking. There is a blank slate of nothingness it's a secular slate of nothingness where you, you fill up your salvation, you fill up your, your hope, your faith. You fill all of that up with whatever you want, with you at the center. There's no God, there's no Jesus, there's no sin. No one's wrong. So we have to change the way that we approach. And finally, be responsible for the unchurched that are near you. This is a very simple way to start. How do we start? We take one simple step. Are you gonna go out and vote this week in the elections and all of a sudden our country's gonna be in revival? No, it's not. Could you go out this week and have a coffee with someone and possibly they take a step closer to Jesus? That is a very real possibility. I feel I am not winning at this area and I wanna get better at this because there's unchurched people in my life, in my family, in my street, in my soccer club. Before I worry about changing the world, I need to get myself in order so at least I'm building some long-term friendships with people and they might know something about Jesus. This is the great challenge.